0: That backlash is fake, right? They go away, they are a flash in the pan. We are not losing the progress that we made. We are just now uncovering ugly seeds of opposition that have been unattended to, that have been ignored, that yes. perhaps we overlooked, yes. right? We can overlook them no more. We have an opportunity again here at great cost. right? When someone like Heather Heyer gives her life in order for us, to understand the vitriol, the hatred that is still present, right? We cannot be apathetic. We cannot lack vigilance. We
1: cannot be in doubt of what's still hiding right beneath the surface. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is Vernice Miller-Travis, and I'm the Senior Advisor for Environmental Justice and Equitable Development at SKIO. I co-host our regular monthly series on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Environmental Justice, and Equitable Development. As part of this series, we talk about how we can make our communities more sustainable, livable, and equitable. Our guest today is Professor Dana Bowen Matthew from University of Virginia School of Law. Welcome, Dana. Thank you. And I'm not going to tell you all how long Dana and I have been friends. (laughs) It just would be too embarrassing. And our topic of discussion today is the current political climate and what is churning in Charlottesville. Oh, we picked an easy one. And what that bodes for the rest of the country. So we'll get into that, but I want to tell you a little bit about Professor Matthew. Dana's originally from New York, from the Bronx, New York. We went to high school together in the Bronx. I'm not going to tell you all what year we graduated, but she lived in Charlottesville previously from 1984 to 1994. During that time, she attended and graduated from University of Virginia School of Law She clerked for a federal judge. She worked at a law firm and taught at the University of Virginia Law School. So she's both a graduate of UVA Law School. She's a previous member of the faculty. And now she is the William L. L. Matheson and Robert M. Morgenthau Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia School of Law. And her areas of expertise include health law and policy, public health law, health equity, equal protection, environmental health, medical liability and malpractice, mental health race, social science, and law. And she's also the author of a book, Just Medicine, A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Health Care. She's also a non-resident senior fellow in the Center for Health Policy at the Brookings Institution. Welcome, Dana.
0: Thank you for having me. Can I say one thing, though? Please. I'm really proud of my clerkship for the first African-American justice On the Virginia State Supreme Court, John Charles Thomas. John Charles Thomas. All right. Yeah. What's up?
1: Is he still on the bench?
0: No, he left the bench. Went back to practice at. uh, He's a partner at Hunt and Williams. Wow. But he was the first African American justice on the Virginia Supreme Court.
1: Well, Dana, I have so many things that I want to ask you. This could be an all night, all next day conversation. We've done that. We have done that many (laughs) times, but. Right now, in this propitious moment, so you are recently back in the area on the Eastern Seaboard, having lived in Colorado for how long? Fourteen and a half years. Fourteen and a half years. All your East Coast family and friends begged you and your husband, Dr. Thomas Matthew, to come back. And you finally made us all very happy by coming back. You get back. Everything is good. And then you are due back on the campus at University of Virginia School of Law on August 11th. What happened?
0: That was actually the day I was supposed to be on campus. Right. My moving truck was sitting in the driveway. We have a house in DC and I was moving to my apartment in Charlottesville mm-hmm. and the moving driver called and said, we will not be going to Charlottesville today.
1: And why did he say
0: that? Because he had been on the CB radio or whatever airways truck drivers listened to and everybody was saying, avoid Charlottesville at all costs. It was dangerous it was not safe for us to go. In honest terms, he refused to go. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. There was a way in which there was a, I had an interest in being there, notwithstanding what was going on just because, I mean, I'm a race scholar, so Mm -hmm. I think about things that have to do with racial conflict and racial reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So when I turned on the television and started hearing what was going on, I thought, this is a place I need to be. History is happening right here. Hopefully, not being made for future, but it's happening. And said, and you no. didn't have
1: any trepidation,
0: of course, about I did. wanting to get here. Of course, I did. Of course, I did. And in fact, my husband was asking me, "Was I crazy for wanting to go?" But there was no way he was going to take me, and no way we were going he called the next day and said, we're still not going. It's still not safe. So the next day was the day of the, the alt- Unite right. the Right mm-hmm. um, march. That was the all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People call it a march. Yeah. I call it a riot. Yeah, It was a riot. It was terrorism right here on our own soil. So it was deadly and there was nothing. I mean, I want to distinguish it from the kinds of marches that are healthy and purposeful and a true expression of freedom of thought
1: absolutely that's different so let me ask you to to look backwards for a minute so you lived here from 1984 to 1994 and i remember almost everything i know about charlottesville i know because of you and your husband so mm-hmm. i came here to visit you i came to your law school graduation charlottesville wasn't really on my radar but you put it on my radar mm-hmm. and i remember falling in love with this place yeah. i remember falling in love with the skyline drive falling in love with the blue ridge mountains Falling in love with this bucolic place. Yes. But I want to know, what was it like 1984 to 1994? Is there a continuum from that period of time when you lived here till now? People are saying that this is not Charlottesville, that what's been happening here is just not Charlottesville. Mm. And the question that I have is, were there undercurrents? Is there some subterranean context? Because Charlottesville has a history. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about that history. And I'm talking about a history of hundreds of years ago, mm-hmm. but that history is still in the air. And is that why the Unite the Right folks felt that they should come here besides the Confederate monuments, mm-hmm. So looking backwards, what was it like to live here then? And is this a changed place now that you're back?
0: So first, let me say those were 10 happy years. Uh-huh. I remember being happy. I was very happy in Charlottesville. And truthfully, I am happy to be here now. But that doesn't directly answer your question. All the things that you described, the beautiful, beautiful place that it was, the educational opportunity I had, the deep friendships that I've built, those are some of the best memories. All three of my children were born here. So it's a wonderful place from those vantage points. You asked a really important question, and that is, did what happened on August 11th, on August 10th and August 11th come from the outside? I'm going to have to say, no, it did not. I'm going to have to say it was always here and near. And in fact, very, very, very universal, right? The urge that people had as soon as I did get here. And I think I got here on August 14th. I ran ran into person after person after person who said, we're so glad you're here. I'm sorry that those people from the outside came in. And I'm so sorry that those outside forces came to Charlottesville. Let me say that that is not the way I see it. I see that, yes, there were a truckload of people from the KKK that were brought here from North Carolina. They weren't from here. But we, the University of Virginia, graduated the organizers of the Unite the Right uh, rally. Mm -hmm. We graduated them, right? Moreover, we have heard from various students who were willing to put their bodies on the line to protect the grounds to protect the city various people who were brave beyond what i could imagine say that they saw people in that rally that signed their high school yearbooks that they went to school with right just to go to the question you asked about what has changed about charlottesville one of the things that i feel has changed is a new willingness and openness to look the problems that gave rise to this ridiculous show of nationalism hatred classism just racism in its ugliest form never is there ever a non-ugly form of racism but you get my Mm drift right to look it in the eye to account for it and not run from it as though it belongs elsewhere right we are all accountable for the enemy in our midst and we allowed it to grow and we allowed it to be here On the other hand, I would say, why here? Why here? Because of some of the things that have changed. Our city council voted to remove the vestiges of racism, statues that honor people who were treasonous traitors to our nation's history, right? Can you just say that one more time? Treasonous traitors to our history. Well, I mean, these are statues memorializing people who wanted to
1: secede from the United States. I I concur, but people don't often talk about it in that context. They memorialize and they have this grand history that they've created around the Confederacy without talking about what ultimately the Confederacy was about. And there's there's myth-making, large, as large as those statues about what the Confederacy was about. And rarely do people talk about trying to unwind the Union and destroy the Constitution is treason. So why do we make them out to be such grand people in our history? Well, they are a part of our history. And that's what I mean about facing
0: it. They are not something that we can blink and act as though it isn't there. I don't want to take those people off of the face of the earth, Of the earth, yeah. right? What we must do in order to have a future that doesn't repeat the past is we have to understand what happened in the past, right? And our history includes the very ugly secession of states that wanted to protect the right to own human beings as property, right? I understand the stickers that say heritage, not hate. Mm -hmm. I understand that there is a heritage of the South. I am a daughter of Southern parents. Mm -hmm. In fact, it turns out that my grandmother's sister was born in Charlottesville. Right. I'm still looking and searching. for my And you didn't know that. I didn't know that growing I up. That growing up. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that until I returned. And one of my cousins sent me her birth certificate mm-hmm. to remind me that I have Charlottesville roots that go deeper than I had ever imagined. So that's why I say I have an affection, a connection and a deep abiding belief in the good that is here in Charlottesville and the good that will be done. I'm proud of the fact that we are in a moment in time and in history, where in Charlottesville, Virginia, we can show the nation how to resist the recurrence and resurgence of hatred that we have seen nationally. This is a place that could not only be ground zero for what has happened on
1: August 11th and 12th, but it could be ground zero for healing. And it could be a national model. I believe because it could this is, be. Charlottesville is not the only community that has to face this history. That's right. Right? But could come out of that in a much stronger position, having healed some of these rendered wounds that have opened up over the last few years. I believe that's right. So you are part of an effort, Dana, at the University of Virginia to really sort of reconnect the university to the surrounding community and many of the travails that go unaddressed or unremarked on. Can you say a little bit about that? Yes. And is it yes. related to what's happened here this summer? Very much so. Okay. Very much so. So
0: as part of one of the things that I have seen remarkably change about the University of Virginia is a concerted effort to be introspective as well as to have an outreach to the community around us to say, we are all in this together. And I didn't see that 25 or some odd years ago when I was here. Of course, I was in a different place in my professional career and I wasn't looking at inequity. But we have just received a group of seven core scholars around the University of Virginia have just received a seed grant, essentially, to build an initiative that could turn into an institute for the redress of inequity through community-engaged scholarship. So it is my hope that my colleagues and I will be able to build several different projects with the deliberate intent of repairing the inequity that Charlottesville's premier institution the University of Virginia has not only tolerated but in some ways contributed to this is what a family does it looks at its wounds its scars its ugly history and it says let's account for them let's heal for them and i feel a new sense of energy and commitment. I can't tell you how many times a week I sit down with both an administrator at the University of Virginia, whether it be in the School of Medicine yesterday, the School of Education the day before, the School of Architecture, the School of Nursing, people who are leading and looking for ways to begin to account for the fact that we are a resource-rich Premier elite university sitting in the midst of some of the most inequitable, unfair, unjust circumstances right outside of our front door.
1: So, say a little bit about those inequities. How do you see them be expressed? Well, and let me,
0: let me be honest, I'm just beginning to explore. I'm new here and I'm just beginning to gather the data. But what I have seen does not strike me as remarkable. Universities around the country, Yale and New Haven, UNC in uh, Chapel Hill or North Carolina.
1: My alma mater, Columbia University in, in the New middle York of City, Harlem, New York. Right?
0: We could go institution after institution after institution that has not connected its wealth of knowledge and resource into a community where, as in Charlottesville, the infant mortality rate between black and white moms is nearly three times for black moms as it is for white moms, where the income inequity, where the lack of of affordable housing where the rate of arrest and incarceration by rate is so highly disparate. And we could go on and on and on, right? The achievement gaps in the midst of a university that has the resources to graduate Nobel laureates, people who will leave and lead the nation. These disparities are not unique to Charlottesville and the University of Virginia. But again, we are beginning, I am beginning to see that they are of deep concern to the people that I work with. And that's one of the things that has drawn me back even before August 11th and 12th happened.
1: So when I look at the list of scholars that are going to participate in this effort or who are already participating in this effort, one name jumps off the page at me, and that's Franklin Dukes in the School of Planning. So Frank has a very special place in the hearts of our firm. Many of the people who work here are graduates of the School of Planning at UVA and uh, were Frank's students and have really, I think, brought a, a level of appreciation for his scholarship around race and history. And in covering that history, he teaches a, a class on, on writing the unwritable wrongs, which is, I think, a seminal foundational class that Everyone needs to take or at least listen to it online about what it is to really go back and challenge that story, who's in the story, who's not in the story, and how everyone's place in history is based. And then what do you do with that? You know, once you know that story, the real story, what does that do for you? What do you do in the work that you do and in the places that you are? So I feel kind of blessed. That Frank has a place in our collective memory, but I see him in the world. So Frank and I were just at a conference together um, a couple of months ago, New Partners with Smart Growth, and he talked about this effort that he's leading and a part of in Charlottesville to bring this conversation to a productive place where people can really talk about the history, the place, the context, and where we are now. And I had him talk about that to people from around the country, that it's not just Charlottesville that needs to be having this conversation. So I want to ask you, Dana, there's what's going on in Charlottesville, but there's something churning in our country. There's something churning around the world that is bringing bringing forth some history that we all thought we had transcended. Mm -hmm. What is happening in this moment, you think, domestically and globally?
0: In my view, things are always darkest just before the dawn, right? We are... Privileged to hear so many voices, Reverend Barber, talking about the third reconstruction, Mm -hmm. right? A backlash after this, what I consider very successful, eight-year presidency, President Barack Obama, and the leadership that he and Michelle Obama gave to this country, the integrity, the national reputation that they built. In my field, just extending health care coverage to 23 million people. All of these things that President Obama did are now being reacted to in a way that, frankly, was predictable. Yes, right? indeed. There was nothing surprising about if we had paid attention. And I will say I was not paying attention.
1: <laughs> I was not paying attention. I'll just tell you one anecdote. So I remember being just completely elated and buying into this is a new dawn and a new era. And my late husband, Charles, who you knew very well, just said, just wait. right?" And I said, Charles, how could you be so dour? This is like an extraordinary moment in our lifetime. And he said, just wait. He said, I'm not, I'm not buying into the hype. He said, of course, I, You know, I believe in him and I believe in what he wants to do in terms of governance, but I know that there is an undercurrent that will come. And so I was shocked Charles was just like, yeah, I anticipated this. And I don't understand why you mm-hmm. didn't anticipate this. It may be a, a bit
0: of euphoria. <laughs> it could have been that we all had our head. And this is what I choose to believe. We had our heads down. My shoulder was to the grindstone Indeed. with respect to health care and health equity. That was moving apace and continues to. But I want to be clear that backlashes is Right? They go away. They are a flash in the pan. We are not losing the progress that we made. We are just now uncovering ugly seeds of opposition that have been unattended to, that have been ignored, that perhaps we overlooked, right? But we can overlook them no more. We have an opportunity again here at great cost when someone like Heather Heyer gives her life in order for us to understand the vitriol the hatred that is still present. We cannot be apathetic. We cannot lack vigilance. We cannot be in doubt of what's still hiding right beneath the surface and wanting to, quote unquote, make America great again, to take us backwards, not to take us forwards, but to take us back back. to the things. Right. And they will fail. They are failing. We saw last weekend... Hundreds of thousands of young people stand up and say, enough is enough. This kind of mobilization doesn't happen, unfortunately. And I'm not a historian. So you would have to speak to a historian to really see the patterns Mm -hmm. that I believe I'm observing, even from a non-historian, non-expert perspective. Mm -hmm. But I think what we're seeing is a response to a response. And I will tell you, the cure is bigger and better than the disease. We are going to blot out the wound. We are going to blot out the hate because love overcomes hatred. And what I saw last weekend, I was not there. I was here in Charlottesville. What I saw last weekend was a group of children who said we are better together, Indeed, who stood up and said, even though we are being listened to for the first time because we are from Parkland, an area of privilege, an area of prosperity, we stand shoulder to shoulder and side by side with our brothers and sisters who have Experienced gun violence and who have experienced Indeed. the same Indeed. carnage that we are experiencing. And we say, with them, it is no different for us than it is for them. Enough is for them and is enough for us. There are more and more, I see, intersections like that where people are coming together. I'll give you another example the opioid crisis, right? You and I know that one of the reasons that it's being treated as a public health crisis is because the number of white men who are overdosing and dying deaths of despair. But let me put emphasis on this term, deaths of what? Despair. Despair Despair treats everyone alike, no matter what color they are. And so I see this as another opportunity where suddenly we are aware that in this version, this iteration of an opioid crisis, and this is the third, third release, one. This is not our first opioid. It's indeed. not our first time around. Indeed, indeed. Right? The second time around, it was treated as a criminal justice problem. Why? Because the victims were largely black, and, black brown. and brown, and they were largely people who were regarded as criminals, whether they were or were not afflicted with the disease of addiction. But lo and behold, here we are at a moment in history when we can see the despair puts people in position of trying to medicate and abuse and respond to things that are no different for whites than they are for blacks. This could bring us together. This could bring us together to understand that it is the social context that creates that that despair. When people have no jobs, when they are hopeless, right? Notwithstanding the improvement in the economy, and it has been significant, but not for all, but not for all, right? The geographic locations where we see the opioid crisis most virulently out of control are places in which unemployment remains high and hopelessness remains high. And that is the same unemployment and the same hopelessness and the same fragmentation of families that has been a problem riddling communities during the 70s and 80s. Indeed, 60s. And the 60s, exactly. When the second wave of opioid epidemic or crisis hit this country. The only one that's different is the first one, right? In the late 1890s and the 1920s, right, when the opioid crisis was almost uniquely among high-income or middle-to-high-income white women, that was a different nature of an opioid crisis. Laudanum. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so it makes sense that we treat that opioid crisis, the things that were able to stop the... Spread of the disease in that instance won't be the same that will stop the spread of the disease in this instance. We must look at social determinants and we must look at them equitably. I have to get this out. I know you didn't ask me this
1: question. But I'm, I'm happy to hear you're thinking on this. But I have to get this out. When we
0: make the solutions for the current victims, we should make them equitably for the victims of the prior epidemic as well. And retroactive. Exactly. We must use our current learning about the fact that this is a disease and not a crime. We must use our current learning about the need for multi-generational treatment, the need for interventions in mental health and substance treatment, the need for housing and supportive forms of job and community and workforce development. We must take that learning and apply it, not just to the current victims, but to the victims of all opioid epidemics in the United States.
1: Indeed. Dana, when I hear you talk about your work, what you're doing, where you've placed yourself, I cannot help but think about the privilege that we had to attend a school system called Ethical Culture that focused on raising up ethical individuals. And I can't believe it's been more than 40 years. I really can't believe that. But it stays with me every day.
0: You just told our age, you know
1: I, that, right? Okay. We can block that out, right? We can take (laughs) that out. Just saying. Um, (laughs) That it still stays with me and it resonates with me every day that if you want to raise up an ethical society, you have to raise up ethical young people. And the place to do it is in the The schools, schools. right? Our schools supported our
0: families and our families supported our schools, right? Yes. And don't get me started on making sure that we don't buy into this myth that's, Senator Moynihan, years and years ago, told us that it was a breakdown of the family, a breakdown yes. of the family. That's what's going on. So the breakdown of the family occurs in isolation, that there aren't social pressures, systemic pressures that break down a family, any family, white, black, otherwise, we're seeing the breakdown in the family, right? That doesn't spontaneously happen and it doesn't spontaneously repair. But the school that we went to was a very special place. It was a place that put ethics at the center of the mission. It was a place that did the hard work, not only of diversifying the school and diversifying the faculty, but including people of different backgrounds, right? So this is hard work. This wasn't easy. I can remember integrating the Fieldston School or being a part of the group of people that integrate without any court orders, without any mandates, they understood critical mass. They understood that you and I and Gina and Iris and all of those friends that were from low income, low income minority neighborhoods needed to see one another so that we weren't isolated and alone. indeed, Indeed, And as a result, look what happens almost to a person. I look at you and the work that you're doing to improve justice in the environment. I look at Gina and the work that she's doing to improve health equity around the nation. I look at people who are holding political office. I look at Erica, who's working in Nigeria and abroad to bring water and equity. The people who came up in a school system deliberately dedicated to equity, inclusion, justice, and raising ethical, moral they change the world. And I believe that's what Fieldstone did.
1: So we had, and all of us who had the opportunity to go to that school for generations, had a privileged opportunity. But not every person in public school in New York City, not any person in public school in New York City had the opportunities that we had. How do you take that rare circumstance and replicate that So that children will have the opportunity to thrive and to grow and to be the people that they're meant to be from the educational system that they're a part of. Because I see it so fundamentally. We are not educating young people. We are not raising up critical thinkers. We are not teaching analysis. We're not teaching history. We're not teaching civics. We're not teaching geography. I don't know what we're teaching, but we are not teaching young people to be the most progressive thinking people that they can be. That is the foundation of any society. So what can we do?
0: I want to tread lightly because I'm now working with people who are experts in education. And my opinions are just that. They're opinions at this point. But I look at the effort to tear down, destroy the public public school system and public education. And that gives me deep, 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 deep concern. I look at the disparity and disciplinarity in the public school system right here, even in Charlottesville. I look at the data that tells us that black and brown children suffer the gaze of their teachers expecting discipline problems. And those discipline problems are disproportionately handled with long stays out of school, thereby creating absenteeism, which thereby is directly associated with low educational attainment, which is thereby connected to low job rates and increased encounters with the criminal justice system. It's all of one piece. So I believe at the core we will have to rely on the experts, understand transforming our public education system and understanding the role that public education plays in the United States of America
1: and giving access to opportunity so in let this me, country. let me ask you one more thing about that. I remember your parents. I remember my parents. I remember the parents of all the children that we went to school with being actively engaged and being, I thought, somewhat psychotic. in terms of what they demanded of us. And I'm wondering if you do not demand excellence, can you achieve it with your young people? We were required by both our teachers and our families and our classmates to reach the highest goals. Who is giving that message to young people today?
0: So what I think we had, Bernice, in that magical space was people who believed in us. Yes, indeed. People who loved us and believed in us. They looked at us. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think I've ever shared this story. It was traumatic for me to go into Fieldston and be one of a few brown kids, right? And I remember acting out. I remember fighting with kids because of my discomfort and the school embraced me. I remember my mother trembling when she had to come to parent-teacher meetings because my mother grew up in the segregated South and the segregated North. And going to sit in a school meeting in a room full of people who were white was very frightening for her. So other families came around her, the Mm Pedersons. right? mm -hmm. We all seared one another up wherever we fell down and helped one another. There were families that reached out to us. I'm thinking Priscilla Bassett, Mm -hmm. Mrs. Romer, you know I had a conversation this past two weekends with Mr. King. Those were people, and this is what Mr. King told me. So the answer is people believed in us, right? This is what Mr. King told me. I kept saying, thank you, Mr. King, for putting a clarinet in my hand. There was never a worse clarinet player (laughs) on the face of the planet. But what he said to me was, we all were looking for ways to make sure that you children did things together that depended on one another. So we had the orchestra so that all of you would have to learn new instruments together in order to make music. That was our way. And he said, we felt our way. We just came up with new ideas. We used to sit around and come up with new ideas, right? We used to come up with new ideas. So don't tell me it's just the parents. That has to know. It's, it's a every together. village. Indeed. It takes all of us together. Indeed. Right? Because there were days when my parents couldn't hold their own. Could not hold their own. And instead, Fieldston came along and grabbed them. And they grabbed other families that were broken. And they grabbed families that were hurting. And let me tell you, there are families that are broken and hurting that comes in all colors, Indeed. all shapes, Indeed. all Indeed. sizes. Indeed. Right? Indeed. So this idea that you just have to... Seed those broken families over in the poor. No, that's right. not how never. it works. Never, never. Right. But the real answer is that people worked together. They had a mission, and they believed in us. And so, can can we do that here in Charlottesville? I do. Believe and can we, we do can. that in
1: other communities across everything? Country? I
0: have seen in Charlottesville tells me that we can. Everything that I have seen, certainly at the university level, certainly at the law school. One of the reasons I am back is because Dean Risa Goluboff. I mean, amazing. We have a new president coming in, committed to education, committed to equity in education. I see this and I hear it when I go to the Curry School and I talk to Nancy Deutsch. I see it and I hear it when I hear Lewis Nelson talk about outreach to the community and Frank Dukes and Barbara Wilson, my co-PI in this initiative. Mm -hmm. And Bonnie Gordon, I just keep going on and on and on. I go to the nursing school and I see Camille Burnett, talk about trauma-informed care and interventions. Indeed, That's going to heal this community. Indeed. I believe we stand at a moment in time where Charlottesville can show the world how to heal.
1: So we've come to the end of our time together, obviously not the end of our conversation. Thank you, Dana, for joining us today on the podcast. We really appreciate you carving out this time to speak with us. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time at Infinite Earth Radio.